Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. I took piano lessons for several years as a child, but I didn't get very far because I had a rather peculiar approach to learning. Due to my principled objection to the existence of other clefs, I never bothered to learn bass clef. Anytime I got a new piece, I just memorized the left-hand part first and then played off the music while looking only at the treble clef. It's kind of ridiculous in hindsight, but then again, I was a pretty stubborn kid. And apparently, the apple does not fall far from the tree, because when my daughter was taking piano lessons, she had her own unique approach to learning. Unlike me, she was open to learning both clefs. But in an interesting twist, she refused to look at the music. So she simply poked around on the keyboard for the right combination of notes until it sounded right. If you can imagine giving a beginner typist a blank keyboard with no letters printed on it, you'll have a pretty good idea what we experienced in our home every day. Needless to say, it drove my wife, a pianist, crazy, who might often hear yelling, look at the music, from various corners of our apartment. But then I came across a memorization study, which made me wonder if our little one was actually onto something. Could some version of this practice without the score strategy actually have benefits when it comes to performing more securely from memory, and under pressure in particular? There's a pretty robust literature, actually, which shows that stress and anxiety disrupts memory. Whether it's taking a stressful math test, speaking in front of an audience, or giving a performance, we are prone to memory slips when the pressure kicks in. But are memory issues under pressure inevitable? Or could there be a way to strengthen memory and make it more stress-resistant? A team of researchers noticed that most of the research in this area hasn't been all that concerned with what specific memorization strategies their participants used, so they put together a study to dig a little deeper. The researchers recruited 120 participants and randomly assigned them to one of two groups, a study group and a retrieval practice group. Everyone was at first presented with a list of 30 nouns to memorize. The study group was then given time to restudy the 30 nouns. Meanwhile, the retrieval practice group skipped right to practice tests. With no further study or review, they tried to recall as many items as they could remember from the initial presentation. Next, everyone was presented with a collection of 30 photos. 
Once again, the study group was given time to restudy the 30 photos. The retrieval group again skipped right to a practice test where they were asked to recall as many photos as they could. Then the study group was given a chance to review the original 30 nouns and 30 photos combined. Meanwhile, the retrieval practice group attempted to recall as many of the 30 nouns and 30 images as they could from the original presentation with no opportunity for review. Finally, after a short distractor task, the study group reviewed all 60 items one last time, while the retrieval group tried once again to recall as many items as they could. And did these two approaches to studying lead to any differences in memory performance? Well, before we take a look at the results, let's do a quick recap. So all in all, the study group had three opportunities to study or review the material. The retrieval practice group, on the other hand, had zero traditional study sessions. They received one single presentation of nouns and photos, and with no further opportunity for study, were tested on their memory of the original presentation of words and photos from the very start. On paper, that's an awfully lopsided advantage of study time for the study group. But how much would everyone actually remember of the original 30 nouns and photos when tested 24 hours later? When participants returned to the lab for testing, half the participants, 30 from the study group and 30 from the retrieval group, were asked to give a speech and solve math problems in front of two judges and three peers so as to make them a little anxious and increase their stress levels. Five minutes into this stressful task, they were asked to recall either the nouns or photos that they learned the previous day. And 20 minutes later, which is about when the stress hormone cortisol reached its peak, they were asked to recall the other set of items that they learned the previous day. So if they were tested on nouns first, they were asked to recall photos next, or vice versa. The other 60 participants were also asked to recall the nouns and photos they learned the previous day, but they did so at 5 and 25 minutes into a completely non-stressful task. So as you can imagine, stress did have a negative effect on memory, but only for those who studied in the traditional way. When stressed, the study group did worse on the memory test. Despite all of their study time, they were only able to recall 7 items when stressed, compared to 8.7 items when not stressed. But the participants who did retrieval practice seem to be unaffected by stress. When they were tested during the stressful task, they were able to remember an average of 11.1 items, which was essentially indistinguishable from their fellow retrieval practicers' recall performance when not stressed, at 10.3 items recalled. So being able to strengthen memory under pressure is cool, but did you notice how the retrieval practice group's memory score when stressed, 11.1, was better than the study group's score when not stressed, 8.7? It's like retrieval practice enabled participants to perform better in the worst-case scenario than regular studying enabled participants to do in the best-case scenario. So why wasn't studying more helpful? The authors cite a convergence of research, from neuroscience to cognitive theory, noting that retrieval practice seems to strengthen memory more effectively than traditional studying, as it creates multiple pathways to retrieval. Sort of like if Hansel and Gretel had left not just a trail of breadcrumbs, but also a trail of pebbles, a string tied to a tree at the entry of the forest, and maybe used a map and GPS too. The idea being, more retrieval attempts results in a greater number of distinct ways to access the same information. When I was a kid, I never thought about memory until a piece was totally learned. 
I saw memorization as a task that you engaged in during the polishing stage of learning a piece, when you were getting it ready for performance. But how might things change if we saw memorization as an integral part of learning a piece from day one, not as some add-on at the end of the learning process? Some musicians already approach learning in much this way, where they spend the first week or two with a new piece getting it semi-memorized in a basic sort of way, so that they can then play it from memory, however imperfectly and haltingly, from a very early stage. A 2000 study by Roger Chaffin, for instance, tracked a concert pianist's practice as she learned Debussy's Claire de Lune, and found that she made a deliberate effort to emphasize memory from the very beginning, even if it meant, quote, muddling, along in a start and stop and pause and think and start again kind of way at the outset. Whether it's semi-memorizing an entire piece, or simply making teeny tiny daily attempts at recalling even a single phrase or two, integrating some memory component into daily practice does make a lot of sense. After all, despite how disorienting my daughter's practicing was to listen to, now that I think about it, she never did seem to have any issues with memory on stage. You can find links to this week's study and other related practice hacks at bulletproofmusician.com blog. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend or practice buddy who you think would also enjoy experimenting with it during the coming week. And if you'd like to explore this sort of thing in more depth, whether it be to get more out of your daily practice or to get better at managing performance pressure and shrinking that gap between what you can do in the practice room and what comes out on stage, you can learn more about the live and self-paced courses that are available at bulletproofmusician.com courses.